Welcome back to Core EM, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is Swami bringing you episode 2.0 on some infectious disease pearls. We had some very interesting stuff this week in conference, emerging infectious diseases, cardiac infectious diseases, and a great sepsis update. We're actually going to have one of our faculty members on to discuss the pearls from her sepsis update at the end of this. Let's start with the emerging infectious diseases. This was a talk from one of our amazing PGY3 residents, Sarah Yi, and she covered Ebola, chikungunya, and West Nile virus. One critical point before we delve into these three diseases. In the traveler with fever, remember not to focus only on the things you can get in that country, but also in the things that are kind of -of run-of-the-mill infections, things like pneumonia, UTI, and sepsis. Those are going to be more common even in the returning traveler. All right, let's start by talking about Ebola. There's a nice summary article from Tativin et al. in Intensive Care Medicine back in 2014 called Does This Patient Have Ebola Virus? that focuses on many of the major points. We'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Patients will present with nonspecific flu-like illnesses, things like fever, diarrhea, and vomiting. The hemorrhagic complications are late findings. All of us can pick up the patient with Ebola who's shooting blood out of all of their orifices. So how do you effectively screen? First question, do they have a fever? Second question, have they visited a country with endemic Ebola? And right now, that's really narrowed down to Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. Number three, do they develop that fever within 21 days of being in that country? Don't know where Ebola is right now? Check out the CDC website. Isolate the patient, don your PPE, and then call your health department for help. How about chikungunya? Well, this is a mosquito spread disease that typically seen in very hot and humid climates. The symptoms are biphasic fever uh, from two to 10 days out, arthralgias, headache, nausea, vomiting, and possibly a maculopapular rash. So you can see, again, sort of nonspecific symptoms. Patients are going to look like they sort of have a dengue picture, but maybe not as severely ill. The key in diagnosis is knowing where the disease is and where your patient came from. Did they come from a place that has endemic chikungunya? Use the CDC to support your decision making here. Now, there's no specific treatment for chikungunya. It's really just supportive care. Lots of fluids, antiemetics, and most of these patients do pretty well. Lastly, Sarah discussed West Nile virus, another mosquito-borne disease, but you can also get it from a blood transfusion. It's typically seen in August and September. About 80% of patients who are infected with West Nile virus will be asymptomatic. Those that have symptoms, they're usually going to present with fevers, myalgias, headache, nausea, vomiting, and maybe a rash. Sounds a little bit like chikungunya. So again, you're going to have to know what the patterns are of infection in your area. There are some neurosequelae, but they're pretty rare. Only about one in every 150 patients infected with West Nile virus are going to develop encephalitis or meningitis. You can also rarely see an acute flaccid paralysis. The diagnosis here is going to be an LP with West Nile virus IgM antibody in the patients with neurosequelae. And again, common theme here, the treatment is going to be supportive care. 
How about cardiac infectious diseases? Another one of our fine PGY3s, Aaron Arredondo, discussed myocarditis and infective endocarditis. These are both pretty tough diagnoses with, again, vague presentations, but they're potentially life-threatening, and this combination makes them the perfect storm for ED diagnoses. Let's start with myocarditis. Again, very variable presenting symptoms. About 90% of patients are going to have a preceding URI, but we can't screen every URI for myocarditis. The things I've learned to key in on are shortness of breath that can't be explained and also an unexplained tachycardia. Start off with an EKG, which can basically show anything from ST and T wave changes to PACs, PVCs, QRS prolongation, or just simple sinus tachycardia. Chest x-ray and biomarkers aren't going to be sensitive or specific, so they're really not going to help you out here. The gold standard is endomyocardial biopsy, but I don't think many of us want to start there. An echo is a good first screen, mainly looking for things like LV dilation, wall motion abnormalities, and pericardial effusion. The treatment, again, is going to be supportive. There are some bacteria that can cause this, like diphtheria and meningococcemia, that are amenable to antibiotics, and some recommend using antiviral therapies, but nothing really proven on that end. Patients with myocarditis usually recover on their own, but some progress to severe heart failure. These patients may need LVADs and possibly transplants. In some locations, they're putting these patients on ECMO to maintain perfusion while the heart recovers. Infective endocarditis is another tough diagnosis. We typically think about it in patients with valvular heart disease and IV drug abuse. The other thing that should key you in is the presence of a new murmur if you're able to catch that in the loud emergency room. There are a host of responsible organisms, but most of them are due to strep viridans, enterococci, and staph. There's also the HACEC group. With staph infections, you have to worry about embolic disease. So these guys can pop off little emboli and get osteo, brain abscesses, stroke, acute arterial ischemia. If you've got pretty good certainty of the diagnosis, you can start with Vanco and Gent and add rifampin if they've got a prosthetic valve. The key take-home points for infective endocarditis are, one, think about the diagnosis in every patient with fever, especially if they've got a valve or have IV drug abuse. You've got to get lots of cultures. If the patient isn't sick appearing, you can actually hold antibiotics while you're getting those multiple cultures. You're almost never going to hear an emergency physician say, we can hold the antibiotics while waiting for cultures, but this is one of those situations where it's really indicated. Get an echo if you can. TEE is the most sensitive, but TTE is actually pretty specific. Finally, one of our faculty members gave a great talk on sepsis updates for 2015. Kat Jamin delved really deeply into the recent literature that's come out on this topic. Now, Kat's an assistant professor of emergency medicine who trained at Kings County in their EMIM program and then went on to do medical critical care fellowship out at Stanford. She splits her time between the ED and the ICU. Kat, welcome to Corey M. Hi, Swami. Thanks for inviting me. I'm yes. happy to be here. Great to have you on here. So, Kat, your talk was an update of sepsis care in 2015. But before we get to that, let's go back a little bit and talk about history. So neither of us was practicing back then, but what was the state of sepsis care back in 2000? You know, the prevailing theory back then was that sepsis represented an uncontrolled inflammatory response. So with that theory in mind, there are a lot of trials being done, and they were conducted on agents that looked at the inflammatory cascade, like TNF blockers, corticosteroids, anti-endotoxin antibodies, and all of these had limited successes. So with that in mind, a lot of the, um, you know, researchers, the outlook for interventions that could significantly improve mortality was, was kind of bleak. 
So that was what it was like in 2000. And, you know, we hear these stories about, oh, yeah, someone would come in septic and, you know, maybe we give them a little fluids, throw them in the corner, and eventually they'd get antibiotics. And that was kind of what we've been told was the care. Then 2001, Manny Rivers published his classic paper on early goal-directed therapy. And one of the big things this study pushed for was early recognition of sepsis based on sepsis criteria. So, Kat, if you don't mind, can we just review that sepsis criteria? Yeah, sure. So the the sepsis criteria, of course, we have to talk about uh, the SERS criteria, the systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria. So the inclusion criteria for Rivers' trial was that a patient had two out of the four SERS criteria, and then on top of that, they had either blood pressure, a systolic blood pressure less than 90 after receiving a 20 to 30 cc's per kg fluid bolus over 30 minutes, or a lactate greater than four. So they had two out of four stirs with hypotension, persistent hypotension, or elevated lactate above four. Yeah, so Manny was looking at a pretty sick population, clearly. You know, and these criteria do have some issues. We've known for a while that criteria are pretty nonspecific. Basically, if a patient comes in with a common cold, they're likely to have SERS criteria. We've been willing to allow for that poor specificity because we want to catch everybody that has the disease. There was an article in New England Journal of Medicine just published recently that questioned the sensitivity of this as well, which is a little bit scary. So Kakunin et al. basically found that SERS will miss about 12% of patients with severe sepsis. Despite this shortcoming, using this criteria is still sort of the industry standard. It's standard care at this point. Now, going back to Rivers, Kat, what did EGDT show in terms of mortality benefit? Well, it's very remarkable, again, given what was the state of care back in 2000. They found that the in-hospital mortality was 30.5% in the group assigned early goal-directed therapy as compared to 46.5% in the group assigned to standard care. That's pretty incredible. So at 60 days, early goal-directed therapy brought mortality down by about 16%. That gives you a number needed to treat of around six. Now, Rivers Protocol had a lot of different interventions, but two of the big ones that I think get debated a lot are the CVP between 8 and 12 millimeters of mercury and the central venous pressure to get that up to around 70%. Those measures were incorporated in the surviving sepsis protocol, and I think the reason we have problems with it is because it requires a central line being placed, and that's what happened in the river study. They actually used a, a kind of fancy central line that was able to constantly measure these things, which we don't have. Now, I don't think in our institution, Kat, or probably any of the institutions we've worked in, it's such a big deal to put a central line in. But in a lot of the community shops, this is actually a pretty big investment of effort. So, Kat, what were the other sort of big critiques from the River Study? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. A lot of the other critiques are that there was a high mortality rate in the patient population reported by Rivers. On top of that, it was a single center study. So how generalizable is it to the community hospital that you're speaking of or to any other hospital? The protocol is complex. They had a dedicated clinician there for the entire six hours, um, and it, it had many factors along with it. So you spoke of the specialized catheter that they used, but it also, you know, they transfused to a certain rate. They used certain types of um, ionotropes. And in looking at the overall protocol, is it the protocol itself or is it a piece of the protocol or, you know, how much can we say that it's the lactate versus the SCVO2 versus the transfusion? We couldn't. We had to take it all as one, that this is what changed the mortality rate. Yes, it's always tough when we have a package of interventions that we're doing. You know, you mentioned that it may have been the single person, that single physician who was dedicated to care. There's some rumors that the single physician was Manny on every single case, that he <laughs> really bought into this change that we had to address sepsis differently, which would be pretty incredible if it was. 
So from 2001 to 2014, we saw EGDT widely adopted and become standard care. I remember that when I was in med school in the ICU, I had to memorize all of the interventions that were required for EGDT. So we kind of lived by this. But in the last year, it seems that things have kind of changed a little bit. So Kat, what is it exactly that's changed the way we think about early goal-directed therapy? Well, yeah, so it's been some time since that, that first landmark trial was published, and we've seen a lot of studies in the time since then looking at different pieces of early goal-directed therapy. For example, we've seen studies looking at blood transfusion thresholds. We saw that Jones et al. published in 2010 looking at showing that lactate clearance of 10% was not inferior to the SCVO2 of 70% as a perfusion target. But we hadn't seen any trials looking at the entirety of the protocol itself comparing it to, you know, another type of protocol or even standard care until 2014. So three big randomized control trials that have come out in the last 12 months plus or minus on this critical care topic. I think that's pretty amazing to begin with because, you know, you and I both know you don't see a lot of randomized control trials on critical care issues. We often have to go based on retrospective or maybe cohort studies. So let's just briefly talk about each of those studies. So let's start with process. That was the first one that came out. Yeah, so process started in, you know, to uh, United States. So there were three big trials across the globe. So process was based in the United States, and they had over a thousand patients, about thirteen hundred plus patients, and they had three arms of the study, which is really interesting. So they had one arm, which is the same as the early goal directed therapy arm in Manny Rivers trial. Then they had a second arm, which they called a, a protocolized care arm, where the patients were receiving protocolized type care, but they did not have to have a central line place, and they did not have the strict transfusion threshold of a hematocrit of 30. And then the third arm was the usual care arm, which is up to the discretion of the physician caring for the patient at the time. The primary outcome was 60-day in-hospital deaths, and remarkably, they found no difference in mortality at 60 days or even at 90 days between the three arms. So the U.S. struck first with process, and then next was the Australians and the New Zealanders with a little bit of a foray into Southeast Asia, and that was the ARISE trial. So what did their trial show? So the ARISE trial took place in 51 centers across Australia and New Zealand, uh, encompassing about 1,600 patients. And in these, this trial was two arms, the early goal direct therapy and usual care as the contrasting arm. The primary outcome, again, 90-day all-cause mortality, and they found no significant difference in all-cause mortality between the two arms and no significant difference in the rates of organ failure, hospital stay, or days in the ICU, and no significant difference in adverse events. So that's pretty amazing because they had 51 centers in different countries. This really improves the external validity of this trial and allows us to apply it to our institution. So finally, we got out of the UK the PROMISE trial. So what did the PROMISE trial do and what did they show? So the PROMISE trial took place in the United Kingdom and 56 hospitals, 1,260 patients enrolled. And similar to the ARISE trial, they had two arms, early goal-directed therapy and usual care. And similar to the other two trials that we just discussed, they found no difference uh, between the arms and 90-day mortality. So we've got three well-done randomized control trials. They weren't blinded because that was really going to be hard to do. And they all basically show the same thing. Standard care was non-inferior to early goal-directed therapy. It was less labor and resource intensive. So Kat, how does this affect the surviving sepsis campaign that we all know and love? Right. So great question. So I think this has been one of the critiques of their surviving sepsis campaign, you know, over the last few years is about 
their six-hour bundle mandating the central line and the SUVO2 measurements. So they came out with a recent update, and their three-hour bundle is the same. Namely, the three-hour bundle, we are to you know measure a lactate, get blood cultures before antibiotics, give broad-spectrum antibiotics, and give 30 cc per kg IV fluid if the patient is hypotensive. But they revised the six-hour bundle. So the six-hour bundle now recommend, they recommend vasopressors to maintain a MAP greater than 65, Remeasuring the lactate, so those two are the same. And then the third recommendation is that they want us to reassess the volume status and the tissue perfusion. And they give us a variety of ways of doing this, and they want us to document it. Uh, so we can either repeat an exam, including the vital signs, cardiopulmonary exam, cap refill, pulse, and skin findings, or they recommend that we look at two of the following, either a CVP or SCVO2 or bedside echo or dynamic assessment of um, volume responsiveness, namely passive leg raise or response to a fluid challenge. So not much change here in the three-hour. The six-hour window is what really changed, giving us the option to not put a central line in. I think that's really great because talking to a lot of my friends who work in the community, they have a problem getting that line in under six hours because they're so busy doing everything else. You know, me and you, we've got like 50 residents running around that are looking for procedures to do. So it's pretty easy for us to get a line in, but that's not so easy in the community. So I think these trials are really great. I think the Surviving Sepsis campaign did a good job of sort of allowing a little bit more leeway. So the bottom Bottom line, Kat, how does this change what you do? Well, I think this just emphasizes the importance of early care, you know, and aggressive care in these patients, which is what you had said before, what Rivers helped accomplish in changing the whole landscape of caring for patients with disease back in 2001. So this is just for me, it's emphasizing the early antibiotics, giving fluids, and continual serial reassessment of patients, you know, that we don't have to hold to, you know, necessarily CVP or SCVO2, but we do have to keep an eye on these patients and making sure that they are responding. Another thing that I just want to point out is that this is not a condemnation of central lines. If you need access, put in the central line, you know, or get wherever type of access that you need to give the resuscitation that these patients need, but it's not mandating that we put essential lines surely for measurement of CVP or for SCVO2. I think that's a great point. If you need it, you put it in, but you're not forced anymore. So, Kat, before we wrap up, anything else that the listeners should know before we go? Well, a few other, you know, I kind of mentioned it before about the blood transfusion. So it's interesting also just to mention the TRIC trial back in 1999, and then the TRIS trial also came out in 2014 in New England Journal. This is a multi-center randomized control trial looking at patients with septic shock and looking at a restrictive versus a liberal transfusion strategy of of seven of hemoglobin versus nine. And it found that the overall 90-day mortality rates of ischemic events and life support was similar and that the patients in the restrictive group received actually 50% less transfusions. So this is just even more for us to just look really, to critically think about how we're treating these patients and to not just go by strict um, measurements of of where we could potentially over-transfuse patients. Yeah, I think that we're starting to move away from liberal transfusions in general, regardless of what the pathology is, whether it's upper GI bleed. I think trauma has started to come away from it as well. And now we're seeing the same thing with sepsis. Well, there you have it, the state of sepsis care in 2015. Bottom line, three large, well-done RCTs show that standard care is non-inferior to early goal-directed therapy. Now, this is by no means an indictment of Rivers' work. It's really exactly the opposite. The reason why standard care compares so well is that over the last 15 years, we've all learned Rivers' protocol and made it a critical part of how we treat sepsis. 
our entire process of care was shifted. Rivers basically moved mountains to get us to where we are today. So as of June 2015, what you have to do first is recognize patients with potential sepsis early. Then for the three-hour bundle, measure a lactate, get blood cultures, start broad-spectrum antibiotics, and give a 30 cc per kilo bolus of IV fluids. Within six hours, we're going to start vasopressors if you haven't achieved a map of 65, recheck the lactate to see how your therapy is going, and then reassess the volume status, either by invasive measures like CVP and getting an SCVO2, or with bedside echo and dynamic assessment. There's an excellent blog post and podcast on this topic over at Rebel EM. Salim Razai recorded a talk that he gave at the Texas College of Emergency Physicians this year on the topic, and he covers the updates to sepsis care from the trilogy of sepsis care articles, as well as the TRIST trial on blood transfusions. He talks about blood pressure targets and a couple of more issues. Kat, thanks for coming on Core EM and spreading some great knowledge. Thanks, Romy. It's a great time being here, and I'm looking forward to hearing more Core EM podcasts in the future. Yeah, we can't wait to get you back on. Well, there you have it. Core EM Podcast 2.0 in the bag. We'll be back next week for more pearls and pitfalls from our conference. Until then, remember the Core EM Podcast is core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time.